All right, take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn them to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to begin by reading from verses 26 and following, Matthew 10, 26 through 31, this brief paragraph in the Sermon on Mission. Matthew 10, verse 26. You follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read. So, Jesus says, so do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in the ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. This is the season for angels. Angels are everywhere. Angels are on top of trees. Angels are baked into cookies. Angels are on television. Angels are in nativity scenes. And angels, of course, the reason they're everywhere is because of their prominence in the story of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Angels are those spiritual beings that God used to announce to Zechariah and to Uh, Joseph in dreams and to Mary and to the angels that the Messiah and his forerunner were coming. And every time these angels appear, you can look uh, in the beginning of the gospel stories, every time that they appear, the first words that they have to say are, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Uh, This happens often in scripture. It must be. It must be that unless angels go to great length to obscure some of their angelic glory, uh, they must be terrifying to look at. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Which makes me wonder, why doesn't God use angels as his messengers more today? We just read a paragraph in the Sermon on Mission, right, in the book of Matthew. So there's the introduction of Jesus' birth, his baptism. Then there's the Sermon on the Mount. Then there's some miracle accounts. And then there's the Sermon on Mission. And we just read a paragraph from the Sermon on Mission. Jesus is about to send his 12 disciples out on their first ministry tour, and they're nervous And Jesus warns them about some of the opposition they're going to experience and some of the persecution they will encounter. And I ask the question, why didn't Jesus send angels to do that work? Or at least why didn't he send one angel with each of the disciples, right? You ask the question even more when Matthew ends and the commission that Jesus gives to these disciples here extends, expands to all who will follow him Why doesn't God send angels to preach the good news instead of human beings like us? Why doesn't he send these creatures who make tough guys scaredy cats instead of sending us scaredy cats? Why does he do that way? Jesus knew he would be afraid. Three times in these six verses he says, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do you know that's the most common command in all of Scripture? 
you take all the commands of the Bible and put them together, do not be afraid is the most often repeated command in all of Scripture. And Jesus says it three times here in this paragraph, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. We're not angels, but we're still messengers, and Jesus knew we would be afraid. Here we are tasked with representing him in the world, telling people the good news about him, and he knew we would be afraid on the bus and what kids would say about us. He knew we'd be afraid in our neighborhoods of being the guy that people avoid talking to or roll their eyes when they see. He knew we would be afraid to go to places in the world that would be very dangerous to represent the Lord Jesus, where we would face imprisonment or um, beatings, arrest, execution. He knew we would be afraid. So he gives us in this paragraph some reasons not to be afraid. And I want to spend our time this morning with you talking about these three reasons that Jesus gives not to be afraid. And one of the interesting things in this paragraph, what I want to show you is, though it is rigorously logical, there's a lot of so's and if-thens and therefores in this paragraph. It's very logical, very reasoned. Uh, Jesus' main appeal, the rootedness of our courage, is not actually in reason, but in our relationship with God. Jesus here does not try to reason you out of fear. He tries to, I'll use this word, relation you out of fear. Uh, I, I want to show that to you in, the paragraph, in this paragraph. I hope you see that. Let's start. How not to be afraid. Why are we not afraid? Number one, uh, we're not afraid because we repeat the message of Jesus. We repeat the message of Jesus. We're going to come back to verse 26, but look at verse 27. It says, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight, what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Now, Jesus here is referring to the difference between the ministry that he had with the disciples and the ministry that we have. Jesus spoke to them, or that they're going to have even. Uh, Jesus spoke to them in quiet places, in private places, at night, uh, in the dark, behind closed doors. And Jesus says, take that message that I gave you behind closed doors and proclaim it everywhere. Shout it. Spread it. And he's speaking about the fact that the disciples, these 12, went more places in their lives and spoke to more people than Jesus ever did in his short ministry. Now, uh, uh, but the key, I think the key here in verse 27 is for us to remember that the message that we proclaim does not come from us, it comes from Jesus. What I have spoken to you, that's what you're supposed to proclaim. This is Jesus' message. We don't go out with our own opinions. We don't go out with our own insights. We don't go out with our own philosophies, our own wisdom. We come with his words in his name, on the basis of his authority, to say what he has spoken. This reminds us about what we believe about the scriptures. This is God's word. It's Jesus' words. Even the words that aren't in red in your Bible are Jesus' words. They're all Jesus' words. And we take them with his authority and in his name out to proclaim what he has said. Now, why would this make us less afraid? What, what, is, what is Jesus, what's the connection that he would draw between not being afraid and saying, you're going out with my message? 
I think it helps us remember that people's objections to what we have to say is not primarily with us and with our message, but with Jesus and his message, who he is. You are objecting to him, not to what I'm saying, not to me, because I am just giving you his message. The closer I am, the closer you are to speaking what Jesus has said, the more confidence you can have in the necessity and the urgency of people hearing and believing and obeying the message. It's my goal and my intention every Sunday from this pulpit, whether it's me speaking or not, to uh, come as close as possible to what Jesus has said in explaining it and applying it and, and illustrating it. We got Jesus' message because you have to deal with Jesus' authority, not mine. My confidence in what I say is an expression of my confidence in who he is. But secondly, this, this fear, this uh, repeating Jesus' message and, and fear, it, it helps us realize that opposition is normal. When we're speaking Jesus' words, opposition is normal. It happened to him. It's going to happen to us too. He tells us that. We, we looked at this a little bit last week, but look at verse 24 of Matthew 10. The student is not above the teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more are the members of his household? This is not unusual, Jesus says. You should expect this. This is normal to experience the sort of opposition that you're going to face. Some people that you talk to will be glad to hear it and will gladly embrace the good news about Jesus. Others, not so much. But since you are identifying with Jesus in his message, you should expect to identify with Jesus in this persecution too. Think about how identification works in the good news that we preach and we proclaim. At this time of the year, we celebrate the fact that Jesus identified with us by becoming one of us. God the Son took to himself human flesh and became one of us. He identified with us by being tempted in every way we are. He walked through all of our temptations and yet he passed all of them. He identified with us by becoming for us our sin on the cross. All my sin laid on him. He bore the punishment that we deserved. He identified with us in our sin. He died and rose again. And we identify with him by believing in him, by trusting in him. He's my savior. He's the one who died for me. My hope is in him. This is what happens Publicly, of course, when you, be, when you uh, are baptized, you stand and you say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am publicly identifying myself with him. And then we, we identify with him by representing him in the world, speaking his message. He has identified with us in our humanity, in our temptation, in our sin. We have identified with him by faith and in representing him and speaking this message, and sometimes experiencing the same opposition. So don't be afraid, because we're repeating the message that Jesus brings. Second, don't be afraid, because we revere God. We revere God. Look at 10, chapter 10, verse 28. We're going to spend a fair amount of time in this verse here. 
Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Here's the question this passage asks. Who are you going to fear? Are you going to fear human beings or are you going to fear God? Who is going to have controlling authority in your life? Uh, the, the student, your fellow students in the hall? The guys in the break room? Uh, your, your cousin at the family reunion? Who's going to have controlling authority in your life? Those people or God himself? Uh, he speaks, this, this chapter is about, this, uh, this verse rather, speaks about accountability. Why should you fear God? Because we're accountable to him. He's already brought this up a little bit in verse 26. Look again at verse 26. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Uh, uh, persecution happens in the dark often. It's planned in the dark. It's plotted in the dark. It is born in the Gospels in anger and envy and jealousy on the part of the Pharisees of Jesus. It, it takes place in the dark. There are countries in which you can be a follower of Jesus and they will take you into dark places and uh, imprison you in dark places and beat you in secret. Jesus says, all of those secret things are going to be made known, will be disclosed. You can be silenced by your fear of human beings or you can speak out in greater regard for God. And I use the term reverence because Jesus here talks about our Father in verses 29 and 30. Our Father, we revere Him. We revere Him. Now, the book of Proverbs puts these two types of fear in contrast with each other quite well. Look at Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So fearing the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. But look at the end of Proverbs, verse 29, chapter 29, verse 25. Fear of man, on the other hand, will prove to be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So there's the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom, or there's the fear of human beings that is a snare. Which, which do you want to dabble in? Which do you want to live in? Um, Oswald Chambers, the Oswald Chambers, said this. Look at this. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else, whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. So there is going to be fear in your life. Who's going to have controlling power over what you say and what you do? Will it be your reverence for God or it will be your fear of other human beings? We should be honest to say this is, I'm talking about as if it's an easy choice, as if I say, well, this is silly, this is, this is simple, why possibly you're afraid of other human beings? Proverbs tells us this because it, it, God knows that this is hard. Now, I, I want to reflect a little bit on what Jesus said in this passage. There's, there's a lot here in verse 28 worth thinking about. Do you mind if we, we spend a few minutes thinking about some of the doctrine that Jesus unveils that refers to in this passage? Um, first of all, um, Jesus talks about the material and the immaterial parts of a human being here, doesn't he? This is a little tangential to Jesus' main point, but notice he says he talks about human beings as though we are body and soul, body and soul. 
There are people in the world, they're materialists, this is what, they, what we would call them. Materialists believe that human beings are just physical, just body, and that soul does not exist. That we are just body, and all the things that we associate with soul are just biochemical reactions that you have. So your love for your mother, you don't really love your mother, you just have a biochemical reaction that makes you feel nice toward her, or that should. Right. Um, you're not really crying at the end of a movie when the hero dies because you're sad at this moment. It's just a biochemical reaction going on in your body that, because you are just body. You are just material. A materialist would say that. Jesus would beg to differ. He says body and soul. And notice he divides here. I'm not sure how in this instance... Um, a specific or particular Jesus is being, but he talks about two parts, body and soul, material and immaterial. There are some Bible scholars who spend a great deal of time trying to understand the text. It's wonderful that there are men and women who dedicate themselves to the Bible like this, but they try to spend a lot of time talking about the different parts of the body and the different parts of that immaterial part of you. So they talk about your heart and your spirit and your soul and your conscience and your will. And they try to make very careful distinctions between those, those things. Uh, I'm not sure. The Bible doesn't always lend itself to that degree of precision. I think it's just more wiser, uh, uh, more wise to follow this path here and talk about our material parts and our immaterial parts. There's your body and then there's your soul or your immaterial part. Jesus talks about a human being who can kill the soul, uh, kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. This is what happens at death. When you die, your immaterial and your material parts are separated. That's what death is. Death is the separation of your material and your immaterial parts. Your, uh, um, you are, when you die, torn apart, as it were. The body becomes inactive and begins to decompose, and the soul lives. And unless Jesus returns before you die, this is going to happen to everyone in this room. You will be torn apart someday. Your body and your soul torn apart. Uh, some of you, Jesus raises this as a possibility, some of you may be torn apart this way by persecutors, by someone because you're a follower of Jesus, by someone who hates that and hates him, and because of that, they tear you apart with a sword or with a gun or with fire. Body and soul at death torn apart. Now, the scriptures tell us that that separation, of course, is temporary. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that, that your body, the bodies of those who have fallen asleep are in the ground, and, but the Lord Jesus is going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep, and there's going to be a resurrection and a reunion, the body and, the body and soul reunited, and there's going to be a resurrection body. I don't know... Um, how tight that connection between your resurrection body and the body you have right now will be. But there will be some connection between the, the resurrection body that you will have and the body that you have right now. I'm not sure. Some of you are hoping that your resurrection body will have a little less wrinkles. Some of us are hoping your resurrection body will have a little more hair. 
but not on your back, right? So we just have these, there's some, there's some connection between the resurrection body and the body you have. Uh, we're not sure in what way, but this death separation uh, will be resolved at the resurrection, this reunification. Now, what's surprising in this passage as we think about these issues is that Jesus says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It might be surprising to think about because I don't think we're used to thinking about a body, a physical body being in hell. It is more than just spiritual existence, hell is. Which means that this reunification of your immaterial part and your material part is for not just believers, but also unbelievers. Unbelievers will experience a sort of resurrection. Look at Daniel 12. Um, uh, Daniel 12 makes reference to this. At that time, the end times... Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, the people of Israel. There will be a time of distress, distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust, dust of the earth will awake, resurrection, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So believers, uh, every human being, when they die, there's a separation. And someday there will be a reunification of body and soul. Some, Daniel says, will awake to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He uses this language in Matthew, doesn't he? He uses the word hell here to describe the place of this uh, uh, destruction. Uh, hell, he's translating a word. Uh, hell's a translation of, of a word you, some of you are familiar with, Gehenna. There was a valley outside of Jerusalem. And in the uh, early days, well, actually the middle days of the nation of Israel, this valley was a place of idolatry. The Israelites worshipped the Canaanite god Molech in this valley. And to worship the god Molech, you would offer your children in a fiery sacrifice to Molech. It was to worship the pagan false god Molech. It was terrible idolatry. The Bible tells us that Josiah the king brought an end, great reformation, an end to the worship of Molech. And because he wanted to completely destroy the worship of Molech in the nation of Israel, he took this valley, this sacred to Molech place, and he turned it into a garbage dump so that no one would be tempted to use that place to worship Molech again. He desecrated this place that was dedicated to this false god. So this valley is the place where they would throw all the garbage from the city of Jerusalem, trying to make it as horrible a place as possible. Dead animals, uh, those carcasses would go in there, and garbage and refuse, and it was always constantly, there was always something there burning. There was always something on fire. Fuel was just constantly be, being added to the, the fuel in this, um, uh, the fire of Gehenna, and that's what Jesus is using, this imagery for this place in hell. He uses the word destroy here. Um, 
rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What does Jesus mean by destroy? I don't think he's talking about absolute destruction as some think. There are some people who believe that, uh, that it, at the end, unbelievers will be thrown into this place of torment and that after a specific period of time, after they have suffered enough for their own sins, that God will destroy them, that he will annihilate them. I don't think that's what Jesus means when he uses the word destroy here, because in a lot of other places when he talks about every other place where he talks about the eternal, the torments of hell, he uses the word eternal, forever and ever. I think by using the word destroy here, Jesus is talking about the loss of every joy, every goodness, just suffering. At the same point in time, this text tells us God will be, or the scriptures tell us, God will be both sustaining and destroying those who have rejected his son because of their sin. This is plain talk that Jesus is offering us, and we speak plainly about it. These are weighty matters. Here is the justice and the holiness of God as Jesus himself speaks about eternal torment equivalent to destruction for those who uh, will not believe in him. There are parts of the Bible that when we read them, they leave us sober and silent before God. We, we talk, we Christians talk about being saved. You should be saved. Saved from what? Saved from being destroyed, both body and soul, in hell. Saved from God's wrath because of our rebellion against him. Now remember Jesus' logic here. If you are afraid of human beings, you are afraid of the wrong thing, you ought instead to revere God who has this power over every human being. We revere him. We revere him so much. We revere his justice so much that we warn you about it even if you don't want to hear about it. So we revere God. Now let's move on. Third third reason we are not afraid because we rely on the father's care it's a significant turn that jesus makes in this passage look again at verses 29 and 30 and 31 are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered so do not be afraid you are worth more than many sparrows again jesus argument is quite simple if God does not abandon sparrows that are worth practically nothing, he cares for you too. And he will care for you too. Because he cares about you more than he cares about sparrows. He doesn't abandon sparrows. He won't abandon you. And the evidence of it is even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Not counted, numbered. Our pastor, uh, several years ago, my wife and I attended a church and... Um, uh, our pastor had, was a, an older gentleman, and he had a little bit more hair than I do, but not much. 
and he shared one of the birthday cards he got one year from a member of the congregation. It said on the front, isn't it good to know on this day celebrating your birth that God cares for us so much that even the hairs of our head are numbered? And you open up the card, and on the inside it said 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, Snarky congregants are a pastor's joy and delight. I just share that with you. He cares for you. He cares for you. Now, you should ask the obvious question. Do you have this question? Some of you are there already. You should ask this obvious question. If God cares for us so much, why does he allow us to be persecuted? If he cares about us more than he cares about sparrows... Why does he even allow the persecution to come in the first place? Why doesn't he just stop the persecution? Or, like I suggested before, why doesn't he send an angel with all of us out? You know, I'll give the message and you, Brutus, that's probably not his name, but you, Brutus, can, can be the heavy and you take care of anybody who, I'll speak and you do your job, right? Why doesn't he do that if he cares for us so much? Well, the text doesn't address that. But the Bible does tell us that God does good work in the midst of persecution. Let me just mention three things briefly. Um, uh, one of them is actually in the text, but I'm sure this list could be longer. But just mention three things briefly. What does God use persecution for? First, to give us assurance. I mentioned this last week in chapter 10, verse 22 of Matthew you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you endure persecution, it is a sign to you. When you follow Jesus through the midst of suffering, it is a sign to you that your faith is real. I love Jesus more than I love being popular. My faith is real because it endures through suffering, through persecution. Or, secondly, God uses persecution for our testimony. We won't read the whole story, but many of you know it. In the book of Acts, in chapter 16, the apostle Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi. They're preaching. They're arrested for it. They're beaten. They're thrown in prison. And throughout the night, they sing psalms, and they give thanks to God, and they pray. And God sends in response this earthquake, opens the prison doors, opens their chains and their shackles, and there they are. And the jailer comes in in great fear that all the prisoners have escaped. And Paul says, no, we're here, we're here. And the jailer is so astounded at how they suffer for the name of Jesus that he says to them, what should I do to be saved? How, how can I be like you? How can I have a faith like yours that would sustain me in times of suffering like, like your uh, faith is sustaining you. Tell me how to be saved. That's in Acts 16.30. Or third, God uses persecution for our growth, for our growth. Look at 1 Peter. There's a number of verses we could look at here, but 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7. In all this, that is the persecution they're experiencing, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Persecution has a refining effect on you. Like gold that is purified, so persecution purifies our faith and leads to growth. Think about the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. 
Do you think you have any other way to learn obedience? If Jesus learned obedience through suffering, how do you think that you're going to learn it in a different way? Now, I, I want to think about these sparrows for a while. I don't know if this is what Palestinian sparrows looked like, but this is what our sparrows look like. And, and I want to think about this little phrase in verse 29. Yet not one of these sparrows will fall to the ground. Now, my translation says, outside your father's care. Your translation, if you have an ESV, it will say, apart from your father. The implication, most theologians will talk about this, is saying, no sparrow falls to the ground without the knowledge of God or without God's will or without God's awareness. But Frederick Bruner, the, the text literally says, not one of them will fall to the ground without your father. Without your father. Frederick Bruner says, let's think about this literally. Let's take the words as they are. No sparrow falls to the ground without God being there. As if he's there right there with that bird as it is dying, watching over that dying bird. Have you ever been with, with a human being when they die? It's happened to me two or three times. It is a high and holy privilege of my position that I spend time in hospice centers and that I get to visit people in the hospital. It's a, it's a high and holy privilege to pronounce people husband and wife. It's a high and holy privilege to visit new babies in the hospital. This is the great privilege of the position that I have. But two or three times I've been with people when they have passed away. One time, uh, the most recent case, uh, what, what, what do you do? What do you do when you're in that room with those people who are passing away? You read the Bible, you sing hymns to them, you uh, if it's appropriate and you can, you hold hands, hold their hand, you, you pray for them. A, a while ago, I was, I was uh, with someone who was, as she was passing away, or I was on one side of the bed and her uh, son was on the other, and I was reading Psalm 23, and she passed away while I was reading Psalm 23. And her son has a rather sick sense of humor, and his mother, who just passed away, had a sick sense of humor, and he knew me. So he turned to me as I was reading Psalm 23, and he said, I think she passed just while you were reading. I said, yeah. He said, it must have been that bad that you killed her by reading Psalm 23. I laughed. His mother would have laughed. It was fine. That's a holy moment to be with people there in this death. Is, is Jesus saying that God is with the sparrows when they die? What kind of creator God is this? Maybe this explains a little bit uh, the end of Jonah here. Look what Jonah, uh, how God speaks to the prophet Jonah at the end of Jonah. Jonah's upset that the city of Nineveh isn't going to be disciplined, that God isn't going to wipe them from the planet because of their sin. And look what God says to Jonah. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand? And then he adds this, as well as many animals. 
Yeah, God cares about the old men and the old women and the babies and the toddlers and the teenagers and the middle-aged and the cows and the sheep and the horses and the pigs. Some of you are very excited because it's hunting season and you're going to go hunting. You hunt because you love to hunt and you hunt because it provides for your family. If God is with a sparrow when it dies, will God be in the woods with you when that deer falls to the ground? Think about what this is saying about the greatness of God. Sometimes we think about greatness as if, as if you have such power and authority, you don't have to deal with little problems. President Obama would speak about his, uh, has spoken about his time in the, the White House, and he says, by the time something reaches the desk of the president, it's always an impossible problem to solve. If the problem were easy to solve, somebody else would take care of it. Some other person at much lower in office would, would say, oh, well, here, here's the solution. We can do it. There are no easy problems that come to the president because he's so great that he doesn't deal with easy problems. He doesn't deal with little things. He's so great. But now notice, though, here, the greatness of God is not so high that he doesn't deal with little things. The greatness of God is so extensive that he cares even for little sparrows. That's how great he is. And, and his care extends to every part of your life when you're afraid to represent the Lord Jesus. He's there with you on the playground. He's there with you over coffee when you're talking to your agnostic, antagonistic cousin. He's there with you if your daughter goes to Asia and gives her life for Jesus' sake. He's there with you when you receive her body at the airport. Now, do you notice I, I said that this paragraph, Jesus is rigorously logical, but he's not trying to reason you out of being afraid. He's trying to relation you out of being afraid. In these verses, what do we see? God is more just and more holy than we imagine. He destroys both body and soul in hell. He's just, he's holy. And he is more merciful and more compassionate too than we can imagine. No sparrow falls without him being there. When we still lived in Texas, my wife and I had uh, responsibility for planning. We, we, were, we uh, were on the, the leadership team of our Sunday school class of young adults, and we decided that we were going to plan a fall event. We were going to go for a hayride and a bonfire, and we found a farm just outside of Dallas that does this. It puts these on for groups, hayrides, and bonfires. So we young adults showed up. Now, some of us were old enough that we had uh, some children, so there were the young adults and then uh, five or six little kids, two-year-old, three-year-olds, four-year-olds. And we got on the, the wagon to go on our hayride through the woods. It was very exciting. And we were about five minutes into the hayride when I realized and found out, I had not known before, that this was a haunted hayride. <laughs> Oof. 
not like Jason's Woods haunted hayride, but, but uh, there was a guy, a couple of them, who were supposed to jump out from the bushes wearing a scary mask and, and with machetes at and scream at us. Here we were with these little kids on this hayride. Oh, no. So what do we do? Well, here's what happened. So they, these, these guys jumped out of their bushes and started screaming and chasing the wagon, and the adults all started to taunt this kid, like eight-year-old taunts. We're not afraid of you. You don't scare us. My grandmother is more frightening than you are. Just taunting, taunting, taunting. And it was astounding to see what happened in the faces of the three-year-olds there. So at first, when the guy jumped out, I mean, there was terror, right, on the faces of these. But when your mother starts picking on somebody, right, it suddenly has a way of reducing your fear. You know, you could just see the three-year-olds were, were watching the parents, and, and as, as, as the parents were, were not afraid, so these three, they joined in the taunting of these uh, masked uh, 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 scarers. I don't need to be afraid because mom's not afraid and mom's here and I'm with mom. Jesus knew you would be afraid. Jesus knew there would be times that you would be afraid to speak his name, to own your relationship with him. He knew that. And here he says, you don't have to be afraid because your father is with you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we confess to you, the Lord Jesus knows us well, and he knows about our fears, and that we are sorely tempted. We are tempted to be afraid when we, when we, when we don't speak your name or don't own your cause. We sang this morning already uh, in that song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, from our fears and sins release us. So we come before you again, Father, this morning, asking you that you would make us courageous people. Courageous because we know of your presence with us. You are great in holiness that sobers us. Your great injustice, it, it, it frightens us. And yet you are great in mercy and compassion, and so it moves us to speak. Free us from our fear. Help us to encourage one another in our fears, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.